Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In every episode, we'll talk about what's hot in the tax world and catch up on what you need to know. I'm your host, Kelly Phillipser, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. As we do every episode, we'll talk tax news and then focus on a hot tax topic. The hot topic this week is a cautionary tale about those PPP loans. But first, here's what's happening in the tax world. Topping the news is the COVID-19 pandemic. There have been over 1.7 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 reported in the U.S. to date and over 100,000 deaths. As a result, Many areas of the country remain shut down with strict stay-at-home orders in place. Those numbers have necessarily affected the economy, with millions of Americans reporting job losses or business closures. According to the latest reports by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the current unemployment rate has risen to 14.7%, with particularly heavy job losses in the leisure and hospitality industries. Congress has passed a few pieces of legislation in an effort to address the crisis. The one that has most folks talking is the CARES Act. The act is huge, but don't panic. I'm not going to run through all the provisions, but I do want to do a quick hit on some of the provisions that impact taxpayers. First, let's talk unemployment. The CARES Act provides unemployment benefits for workers who are temporarily out of work. A new program allows benefits for those not traditionally eligible for unemployment benefits including self-employed workers and independent contractors. Those benefits are $600 a week and are expected to stop unless Congress takes action at the end of July. But the part that nobody's really talking about, those payments are taxable and many taxpayers are not being encouraged to adjust their withholding. I predict that will result in some unexpected tax bills in 2021. To help families meet expenses, The CARES Act also provided for stimulus checks to families. Checks are supposed to be $1,200 per adult or $2,400 for married couples filing jointly, with an additional $500 per child. But there have been numerous reports suggesting that dependents are being left off of the checks. Well, some of that is expected. For example, kids over 16 don't qualify even if they are dependents. Others are clearly mistakes. The IRS says that there's a fix when you file your 2020 return in 2021, but many families say that's not quick enough. The new National Taxpayer Advocate, Aaron Collins, is encouraging the IRS to come up with a resolution before that time. We'll see. Other problems plaguing stimulus check deliveries? Offsets. The only reason that stimulus checks are supposed to be offset is child support. Child support offsets normally allow for the spouse who does not owe child support to claim injured spouse relief. That's supposed to be the case here, but if you had not submitted your claim along with your last filed return, you're out of luck, at least for now. Clearly, that's problematic for non-filers or folks who did not file the form in the first place. Another problem, decedents getting checks. Remember that the checks are advances of a new temporary credit for 2020. Since taxpayers haven't filed for 2020 yet, the IRS will advance your payment based on your most recently filed tax return, 2018 or 2019. There's clearly a chance that between the last filed return and now, a payment could slip through the cracks. Under the CARES Act, there is no clawback provision. That means, for example, that a check that is sent to you in 2020 based on your 2018 return 
that turns out to be too much because let's say your income will be too high in 2020, it's considered a math error and you can keep it. I think that the same reasoning should apply to stimulus checks sent to a decedent. There's no mechanism for the IRS to get it back. And that's what Congress had intended because the idea was to get the money in the hands of taxpayers quickly. And while I appreciate that maybe some of those families aren't entitled to the checks, I'm concerned about the resources to try and get them back. In contrast, I've received numerous reports from living taxpayers who have not received the right amount of their check or haven't received payment at all. It might be a better use of Treasury's time and other resources to track those down first rather than find ways to attempt to claw back from widows and orphans. At any rate, in an interview, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told the Wall Street Journal that decedent's checks should be returned. Shortly afterwards, the IRS posted an FAQ on its website saying that a payment made to someone who died before receipt of the payment should be returned to the IRS. The IRS even has instructions on its website now in case you want <coughs> to return the check. I don't believe this is the correct interpretation under the CARES Act. And this advice, and if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes, is on the IRS website. The IRS has made it clear that FAQs and, quote, other items posted on IRS.gov that have not been published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin are not legal authority, end quote. So it's not official guidance. The IRS even says so. So my advice, I think it makes sense to hold on to the checks for now and wait for official guidance from the IRS. If you have a time-sensitive or more specific question, you can also check with your tax or legal professional. All of that said, a majority of the stimulus payments have already been sent out and hopefully most have gotten where they need to go. And while the IRS phones largely remain closed, the agency recently announced that they will be making some phone lines available to those who have questions about their payments. Fingers crossed. And one more thing about those checks. If you're already plotting how to spend a second check, don't. There is no second stimulus check. Here's the thing. There has been some discussion about a second check, and it was included in the HEROES Act, which passed in the House, but has not even been considered in the Senate. It's just a bill for now. Unfortunately, some writers know that folks are desperate for more stimulus payments, and those writers like the clicks they get for suggesting that there might be another check coming any day now. Only it's not true. No matter how many headlines that you read that suggest otherwise, there is no official plan to issue a second round of stimulus checks. And if you're angry about the misleading headlines and you want to make them stop, just don't click on them. Finally, small business relief. The CARES Act offers a few opportunities for small business to get relief. All the eyeballs are on the PPP, but there are at least three kinds of loans available for small businesses, including the PPP and the EIDL. Unfortunately, many of these options are already capped because of demand. But generally, these loans, which are low interest, and in the case of the PPP, potentially forgivable, they can be used to keep the lights on for small businesses. Loans are even available for sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed persons. You can find out more about these stories, as well as other items of interest, on my blog at taxgirl.com. As for the PPP, that's a good segue into our hot tax topic. So one of the topics that has been dominating the tax world of late is the Paycheck Protection Program, or the PPP. 
The program is precisely what it sounds like, nearly $350 billion in potentially forgivable loans to keep workers on the payroll during the COVID crisis. The program has been so popular that it has had two rounds of funding, an initial round of $350 billion and another $310 billion. But the program hasn't been without controversy. More than 220 public companies claimed at least $870 million in PPP money which was intended to help small businesses with fewer than 500 employees weather the corona crisis. You probably heard some of those names, AutoNation, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and the Los Angeles Lakers. All of these companies have pledged to return the money. But as a result of the outcry, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has said that the Treasury will audit any company taking out more than $2 million in the small business loan program. That, combined with the Small Business Administration guidance, has led some companies under the $2 million threshold to believe they will not be subject to any scrutiny, despite having to submit a certification that they are using the funds appropriately. Earlier this month, the feds made the first arrest linked to the loan program. David Stavely of Andover, Massachusetts, and David Butziger of Warwick, Rhode Island, have been accused of conspiring to illegally obtain SBA funds. Stavely and Butziger claim to have dozens of employees earning wages at four different business entities when, in fact, there were no employees working for any of the businesses. They allegedly sought more than half a million dollars in loans. According to court documents, the fraudulent loan requests were to pay employees of businesses that were not operating before the start of the pandemic and had no salaried employees. One of the restaurants had previously been open but was closed March 10, 2020, when the town revoked the business's liquor license. Another restaurant used in the scheme has not been functional since it was closed in November of 2018 and is currently in disrepair with dumpsters on site and stop work notices posted on the property. While those arrests are the first, federal investigators have hinted that more are coming. I got a lot of mixed responses to that news story earlier this month, but one of those stood out in particular. And today I'm really excited to talk to the man who sent that mail, Jeff Grant. Jeff is an ordained minister with over three decades of experience in crisis management, business, law, and reentry. He's also an expert in recovery, having been clean and sober for more than 17 years. Jeff is the co-founder of Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Kelly. It's good to see you again. I was really struck by the tone of your email which was all at once understanding and cautionary. And that's, of course, because you've been in a similar situation to Stapley and Butzinger. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Sure. To begin, you know that I was an attorney, um, no longer an attorney, but I was in the same exact position post 9-11 that people are in right now. Reeling from 9-11, at that point, I was in the end of a 10-year run of prescription opioid addiction, fueled by prescriptions that were given to me by friends who were doctors. I was a lawyer, so there was a lot of interconnectivity between us. Right. And I was crazy. I was already doing a lot of things that were harmful to my business and harmful to my family and to myself. And then when 9-11 happened, uh, I just went absolutely nuts. My drug abuse increased and the tenuous grasp I had on my business, I was losing. Of course, I was in denial and I didn't really understand that. When a couple of months later, 
there were these advertisements on TV and the radio blaring for FEMA SBA money to prop up businesses that were in a certain uh, circumference and a certain uh, concentric circles around ground zero. I leapt at the chance and I was under the misapprehension that it would actually save my business. There were two issues there. The first is that one, I called them up because back then you could call up the SBA. It wasn't nearly as large as what's the situation as what's going on now. And I explained to them my problem and that I lived in one of the seven affected counties because my business was in Westchester. And they said, you qualify, fill out the application and send it in. So I filled out the application. I can't recall if it was mail or email back then. I just, I just can't remember. But in filling out the application, I was so desperate and I wanted that money so badly that I lied on the application and said that I had an office about a block from ground zero. And that was at 40 Wall Street, which is a building that Donald Trump owns. Right. So there's, my, there's, my t- there's my connection to <laughs> Donald Trump. And it was grounded in this, this small fact that I did have conference privileges in that building. I would ostensibly see clients from Manhattan in that building if I had ever gone to that conference space, which I hadn't. So there was zero impact on my business economically because of lack of access to that building. But yet what I did was I overemphasized it, said I had offices in that building, which I didn't need to do. And so that embellishment was invisible until, of course, two years later when I got a call from government agents who told me there was a warrant out for my arrest. The second thing I did wrong was that I, I, I took the money and I immediately spent it on per, some personal expenses, which is in violation of the SBA rules. These things are happening all around right now. And so I've written about and I've spoken about my experiences for you know, the last 18 years. But certainly right now, it's become something that's extremely topical. That's why I wrote that article for entrepreneur.com. And that's why I wrote my letter to you, just to kind of sound the alarm that nobody has to go through this, at least not without their eyes open and with the kind of information that I possess and you possess about the realities of the situation. Right. And I've heard similar stories when you talk about embellishment, like folks are saying, okay, I have two employees, but last summer I kind of had part-time employees and they might've come back, even though I'm not sure that they would. So I'm going to put them on because that adds to the amount of money that I can now take. I've heard this a lot with actually solos, solo practitioners and, Mm -hmm. and sole proprietors who are, you know, I, my year last year wasn't terrific, but I've had some years in the past that were great. And I feel like this year would have been wonderful. So maybe I'll just get this money and pay myself a huge bonus. Bonuses are allowed, but I've actually heard from some folks that all of a sudden want a bonus of two and a half times their normal salary. And it's understandable because you, as you pointed out, this money, it becomes available at a time where you don't have other access to cash. Mm -hmm. So it feels like you can take it. And especially the loan piece, like I think it's more difficult to justify the free money that you might take that's embellished. But the loan piece, people assume you're going to pay it back. So no harm, no foul. I think that's kind of what goes through people's minds. And it's not necessarily malicious. It's just out of desperation. Well, that's certainly what happened to me. The loan was at very favorable terms and a very lengthy term of the loan. I think it was 30 years. 
and the government took a third mortgage on my house. I think I already probably already had two mortgages when I had sold my house because my business went down because I, uh, I had lost my license in a grievance and tried to commit suicide. And then we had to sell my house. The SBA, they took a short, they took less than they were owed and they released the third mortgage. And mm-hmm. in my mind, which was kind of drug addled or, or an early recovery after my suicide attempt and I got sober, I never thought about it again. I mean, in my mind, it was a loan and I would right. repay the loan over 30 years, which was faulty thinking. And of course, I didn't go to another lawyer or I didn't go to someone else and explain to them what my situation was and get another opinion right. because I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe Sure, because it reinforced my situation. And frankly, also when I was a pretty public guy in my, in my area, people had stopped talking to me by that point. Right. What was the reaction when this happened? Like, Because I know that when I wrote this story, there were a lot of folks on social media saying those guys are terrible. They may or may not be. Like, I don't know what happened. The sense, we, we like to make things very black and white. People do bad things because they're bad people. Like, that's kind of the idea. And obviously, when you talk about your experience, you talk about the fact that there are a lot of complicating factors. It's not a decision that you get up one day and you say, I want to break the law, right? Like things happen. So what was kind of the response from your peers? It's more than just being nuanced. It's really trauma-informed. I was in such trauma that I couldn't even discern the difference between what to do or not to do or who to ask or who not to ask. And we became isolated in our home before we had to sell it because I was a local attorney in Westchester County. I owned a restaurant. I was on the school board for two terms. My kids were in the schools. We had other parents and soccer moms and things like that. We were out there. It was as if we became lepers, as if we became untouchables right away. So the sense of isolation was terrible. I mean, the only place I found any comfort and community was in the recovery rooms. But even then, it took probably a couple of years for me to finally get out the fact that I had done this horrible thing. And the weird thing about the trauma is that, Kelly, it took me probably 10 years for me to actually remember that I wasn't the worst thing that I ever did. Right. Because because I I discounted everything good that I ever done in my life. Right. Because now I had that scarlet letter. I love that phrase, by the way. That's yeah. a terrific phrase. And, and the worst person, the worst offender of branding me was me. I felt my self-esteem had just collapsed. And there was no way for me to see that life is complicated. And there yeah. were a lot of factors involved. And I may have done an illegal thing. I did do an illegal thing. But I was also the softball coach for seven years. Right. My daughters actually had to remind me, you know, you were a good dad. I was. That's great that they, you know, as a mom, I I can imagine that's probably like the hard thing is like, how does your family respond? It's got to be tough for everybody. Oh, yeah. It's always omnipresent. There's always something. Like my ex-wife kicked me out and she should have. She was right because I had been living a double life, not just in terms of criminality, but the drugs were really my first love. I was addicted. And she kicked me out. I found love again. So my story is really a love story about me and, and Lynn and how I was able to find 
love and through that self-respect and, and in the career and a calling and all of that. So I'm very grateful for that. But what pain? And although I do believe that pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth, I don't want anybody out there to have to go through that pain if they can avoid it. And we're at that moment right now where we know, you and I both know, that people are going to skirt the rules. They're going to, some of them are going to do it intentionally, like this guy down in Atlanta who, Arkansas Mo, I think is his name. (laughs) I love that. Who took $2 million and bought himself a Rolls Royce and other things. And then there's a lot of, a lot in between, obviously. We talk about black and white. It's it's really easy to look at somebody who's done something like I took $2 million and bought myself a lot of fancy cars. And then I got $2 million because I wanted to continue to live a certain way. And that was one of the things that you wrote about, which I thought was really fascinating is that you said, you know, to remember that the, the SBA loan is to support your business and not your lifestyle. And I think that that's really an important concept that kind of gets lost in this moment of, you know, we're isolated because of the, the quarantines. You, you see your finances, you're panicking a little bit. You're not sure when things are going to get normal again, whatever normal will look like. And so I do think it becomes more tempting to embellish or to, even if you don't embellish, like even if the loan application is 100% spot on, maybe you're not using it for payroll now. Maybe you're using it to pay a second mortgage or again, not to run out necessarily by a limo or a Rolls Royce or anything like that, but maybe to pay college tuition, which is coming up for your kids, like things that you feel like are justified, maybe even though they're not within the rules, right? Because I do think that that is, again, I was, I really struck by that, that I do think that people see this loan as this is how I'm going to continue what I'm doing. And maybe that's not a good idea either, because you also wrote about how Sometimes this is a good opportunity to look at your business and see what you could have done differently. Some things aren't as obvious. The Rolls Royce, pretty obvious. (laughs) Right. In my case, for example, I had run my credit cards up waiting for the money. And because my business was hemorrhaging money, that's why I wanted to apply. So I ran my credit cards up at 24% or some kind of number like that. I ran them up probably to $100,000. So when I got the money, I couldn't race fast enough to the banks to pay off those credit cards because the SBA loan was at, I don't know, 4%, something like that. And these were 24%. It just made sense. Even though that's prohibited under SBA programs, you're not supposed to use it to refinance debt. Exactly. Right. But But it's tempting. (laughs) Yeah, one, it's tempting. But I should have known better. I I was a business lawyer. And also, all I really had to have done was to take the money and put it in a segregated account and use that money for operating funds. Right. And then new money that came in, actual receipts, anything that dropped to the bottom line, I suppose what I could have done was pay my credit cards back. There's no confidence, I believe, in the loan documents that say you can't use operating money to, for what you want to use it for. Sure. Right. It was madness. If I had to do it over again, what I would have done was, had I been sober enough to do it, I would have just gone to my ex-wife and I would have said, listen, the situation has changed. And right, like right now, the situation changed overnight for people. The situation has changed and we need a dramatic change in our lifestyle right now. 
And if what that means is sell the house, get rid of the fancy cars, uh, take the kids out of private school, whatever it is, my kids were not in private school. But whatever those decisions are, they have to be made right now because if I save the business, then our family is able to eat in perpetuity. Right. But right. but I think there's very few people who are actually able to do that fast enough. You know, there's a deceleration. Those understandings kind of come gradually, some longer than others. If you're going to borrow money from somebody, including the government, then you better have an understanding right then and there of what the wall is, the firewall between that money and your lifestyle. And I think that was really hard, especially now, because with the PPP, the money that was made available, the first round of money was gone in date. I was a part of a lot of conversations with clients on social media, with other tax professionals, and everybody was kind of, there was this rush, like, just go get the application and we'll figure it out later. Exactly. Because they were so worried that the money would disappear, which it did. So then Congress authorized more money. And then kind of a similar thing happened. Like the EIDL, they're not even accepting new applications except in the farming industry. And the PPP loans, those are still kind of slowly coming down the pike. But the, the money is limited. When you have that moment of how can I be doing this differently, you're having that conversation probably at the same time when someone's whispering in your ear, you got 24 hours to get this application in, right? So yeah. I do think that it makes you maybe make choices that you might not have made had you thought about it over six months. Like if you're contemplating over six months, do I take a loan? Does it make sense for me? What can I do differently in my business to cut costs? What can I do at my home to cut costs? You're not having that grace period, right? You're kind of rushing out and saying, I need to get this money right now. And then when it comes, I've actually had a, a few people that the money is in their bank account. And now they don't know what to do with it because they just applied for it because it was available. And I actually, and I understand, again, sometimes there are people with plans. I'm taking this money. I have payroll that is this. I have expenses that are this. It makes sense. Like for a lot of people, it makes sense. But I do think for some people, there was this push, like you mentioned, you know, maybe to save their business, to keep paying for college, for money. People are unemployed right now. If your spouse is unemployed, but you have a business, hey, maybe this is the way that you make it up, right? And and I think that those are the kinds of decisions and conversations that people are having to have in an incredibly compressed period of time. And a complicating factor now that I didn't have to deal with back then is that there are the forgiveness components to this PPP, mm-hmm. which and those rules keep changing. And, All of the time. <laughs> and and one, so one of the reasons that people have been afraid to spend the money, even if they applied for it, is that, that they don't know if the loan is going to be forgiven because there's a formula. And the formula kept changing too. I think the current formula is 75% of it has to be spent on payroll and the other 25% on direct operating costs. But in some businesses like a restaurant, there's a perfect example of where the employees may actually be making more money on unemployment than they were on the books working for the restaurant. And they don't want to come back to work. Yeah. And there's all that tension that's going on between should I, can I re- rehire people? And what if they don't want to come back to work? And then right. have I fulfilled the requirements? So all these guidelines, you know, all these, uh, these FAQs kept responding to that, but to the point where people actually don't know where they are in the right. midst of that. 
Uh, and I was going to say a lot of pressure too. And you mentioned restaurant business. I actually had a restaurant manager contact me. Her servers right now are out of work, obviously. They make mostly their money on tips. They're doing better right now right. if they collect the unemployment than if she were to pay them their normal wage, even if they gross up to account for some of the tipping. But, you know, it's uneven in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Like a Friday sure. night business does better than like a Monday night. Sure, It's causing personal stress because she doesn't want to put her servers who've worked for her for a really long time in a bad position, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to say you have to come back now and take less money. But at the same time, that's how she gets to get the forgiveness on the PPP. And if she gets it in writing from them that they don't wish to come back, that may be putting their unemployment at risk. So I do think, especially for business owners right now, you always feel responsible for your employees, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these are people that you see every day. So you want to make decisions that are good for them. But at the same time, you have this tension between, I still have to pay my mortgage. And I do think that that's what's leading to a lot of people making maybe not the best choices because they're put in these really stressful positions. Again, really uncertain economic times compounded by these ever-changing rules and then all of this economic stress. I just think there's a lot of pressure on people right now to make decisions. And again, we're asking them to make them on the fly. And then sometimes, as you mentioned, the Congress may change the rules. So money you took out a month ago may actually be subject to a different repayment Or like in the PPP with the deductions, the tax deductions, that's something that Congress may or may not be changing. But the IRS has said that if you take PPP money, you cannot claim those same expenses on your tax return. I can see where that's going to lead to problems in the next tax year when people think either mistakenly that they can claim them or I don't care, this doesn't seem fair I'm going to do it anyway, because I spent that money on business reasons. Why can't I claim it? And again, that's, again, an example of breaking the rules where you may know that you're breaking the rules, but it doesn't feel wrong maybe to you. I think that's kind of the problem because people feel like there's all this economic pressure on me. I'm doing the best I can. It's super complicated for everybody in the ecosystem. And Yet, somebody's actually filling out that application, and some bank is actually taking that application. And the banks were hesitant, and they had a lobby that, well, we're only going to get involved in this if you hold us harmless. Right. And just and we're taping this on uh, Saturday, May 16th. Mm-hmm. And just yesterday afternoon, subpoenas were issued by the Justice Department to major banks and they want records of the people who've applied for these loans. And the banks are giving pushback, but you've held us harmless. And what the government seems to be saying is, is that, well, we've held you harmless unless you were somehow involved in the fraud or you purposefully overlooked things that you should have known about. And so who, who's the arbiter of those things? Right. And, and we've had the same discussion with tax professionals. Like if somebody tells you something, And that's what you, and you're assisting them with that loan application and you believe what they're saying. Are you somehow complicit for not doing due diligence? And I would say no, you know, because you don't, same thing in the law, you know, as an attorney, you don't have an obligation to fact check your clients. But I do think that that's going to be a problem in terms of how the government views it. Like who's responsible if somebody does lie on the application or who's responsible if someone makes a misrepresentation about how they paid it, you know, paid it, uh, either their employees or their operational expenses. 
here's something that was not in my article in Entrepreneur, but something that you should be aware of. And certainly I've become aware of because I was fully investigated before I went to prison, when I was prosecuted. Once the government is into your stuff, is into your books, they can find other things too. There are very few people whose books were so perfectly cleaned up and organized on the day that they had to apply for yes. this PPP, for example. We talk about that a lot in the profession, yes. <laughs> right, right. Because when you're going to apply for a loan, it takes time to put all that stuff together and make it organized. And then you have mm-hmm. compliance people, you have lawyers, people make sure. In fact, but to do that overnight and then hope and pray that there aren't subschedules or line items that are off or things like that. And then to wind up the subject of a prosecution, not because you're in default, but because the the government is doing a sweep of that bank, of your bank, and you're looking at hundreds of applications or thousands of applications, and something's come up in their algorithm, that's a horrifying, horrifying situation. So all, all I'm really saying is that, as to this piece of it, is that if you need the money, and you believe that you have a business that will survive because of the money, it's a loan. It may not be forgiven. So would you borrow money to save this business? We know that there's many, many small businesses that have kind of ran past their business life and they're now on fumes or they haven't changed with the technology or the principles are perhaps getting so old that there's no great succession plan. There's all kinds of things going on. And yet taking on debt to solve what is is essentially a short-term problem. And it may be, look, it may be a fatal short-term problem, but it's right there. Mm -hmm. But to transfer that into a long-term problem is a business strategy. It's something that you have to know that you're doing. If you now owe $200,000 more, You owe $200,000 more, and you have to have a plan to put that somehow into your business model because you have to make more than $200,000 more because depending upon the the way that the revenue is treated, I have to actually make more money than the amount that you're paying in the loan every given year. Right. So it's a very sophisticated issue that I believe everyone should be going to professionals or at least going to people who are honest with them. Sure. And I lived in a pretty good neighborhood and my friends were successful business people. And if I had said to my friends, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about going borrowing $247,000. And I had been clear that my business was heading down because I had a drug addiction and because of all of my issues, if I was honest with them, they would have looked at me like I was crazy borrowing two hundred forty-seven thousand. Right. Well, I and mean, then people don't like to talk about when business is going down, right? We like to talk it up, and I think that is kind of part of the problem. I think that's really interesting. Is you talk about you know the Fed's going after the banks now, and these charges that were just lodged in the Northeast that was very very recent in very very close proximity to PPP. I think sometimes that gives people this sense of I've made it past two months. I'm good. But your timeline is different, right? You said it was two years from the time that the loan was taken out before the the warrant came out. Kind of how did that timeline work in terms of when you took the loan to when you were arrested to when you went to prison? Well, first of all, I'm shocked at the speed in which 
the uh, investigators from the Justice Department is moving right now. That wasn't my experience. And I don't think it was the experience of anyone back then. To be clear, this is kind of a continuum of, of SBA and FEMA driven disaster loans that in our business lifetimes, there have been a lot of them. There's been, right. There was Katrina, Sandy, the uh, oil rig issue out in the Gulf of Mexico. Right, because the EIDL loans have been the ones that people are, are, mm-hmm. are taking in it. There's the PPP and then the EIDL. The EIDL has been around for forever. It's just been expanded for now, but it's been something always after a disaster that you could take advantage of. And the scale right now is just so much larger that it it almost blocks out any of the particulars. So for me, obviously 9-11 was in 2001. A couple of months later, I applied for the loan. A couple of months later, so that's early 2002, it was funded, more or less. Mm -hmm. And then mid-2002, July 2002, is when I went down and resigned my license and had my suicide attempt. And then I was sober and in recovery for 20 months before I got the phone call from the federal agents telling me there was a warrant out for my arrest. So luckily, I was sober and I was in a good community of sobriety, going to meetings every day. So I had that to fall back on, but not everybody does. Right. And so now I had to address it. I pled guilty right away. As soon as I looked at it, the, the, the denial left me. Right. And then it took two more years before I reported to prison. So it was four years from the day of my criminality through the day of my entrance into prison. And for anyone who's going through it right now, this could be the harbinger of your future. This is the way it could play out. Even if you're not one of these people who gets a tap on the shoulder, like in the next week or two or three weeks, it could be two years from now. Since a precipitating event for me was the fact that I shorted on the sale of my house, so I couldn't repay the SBA loan in full Mm -hmm. from the collateral. And then I defaulted that default triggered a mechanism. So I suppose there's going to be people now who are going to make payments, but many, many businesses will fail. Some, hopefully many businesses won't fail. That would be preferable, but many businesses will fail because businesses fail all the time, even without these kind of things. So the turnover right. rate on businesses is huge. Mm-hmm. And so it could be two years from now when, when you fail, for example, the business fails and you can not, no longer make payments to the SBA and that can trigger the audit. And they'll look at your paperwork two years from now and it could be a year after that where after now they've done their investigation where you get the tap on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. So you're not out of the woods if you haven't gotten a phone call or you haven't gotten a notice in the next month or two or three. Yeah, no, I think the speed is kind of confusing for people because I yeah, think, for they sure. think that, you know, there's somebody looking at applications like you're, you're good, you're not. And that's not the way it works. It's stuff that happens down the road. So obviously your crime was white collar and that's mm-hmm. who you work with now in, in yeah. your ministry. Like, mm-hmm. was that your experience in prison? Were there other white collar folks there or was it different? Who did you meet and then and what kind of came from that? It's a great question. I was told that I would go to a camp which is where most white-collar criminals go to, where... Right. Uh, like Martha Stewart when she's knitting. Exactly, but not all, but most. 
And certainly that's what I was prepared for. And that's what most people who commit these crimes or, or, or prosecuted these crimes, they go to. But when I got the designation in the mail, it turned out that I was designated to a low security prison, which is a real prison with bars and controlled movements and fences and guard dogs. And it was the whole deal. Although I slept in a barrack of 180 guys. And by the way, these days, a barrack of 180 guys during a pandemic is not necessarily a healthy environment. Right, right. right. Absolutely. Yes. Right. It's, it's like in a military barrack, kind of what you imagine. Or if you watch Orange is, is the New Black, they're living in these little cubicles with four foot walls or five foot walls in a much larger setting. When I got there, I learned that there was one former lawyer, that was me. There were two former doctors. There were five former stockbrokers. And the other 1,500 men on the compound were drug dealers, basically. And half of them were immigration detainees who were on their way out of the country. And so it was a pretty harsh environment. But on some level, it was a very humbling environment. And it put me in touch with things I needed to learn about myself. And it was kind of a monastic experience. I got put in touch with my mind and my body and my spirit. And I learned about religion and I, and I, I took courses. And for me, although it was, it was harsh and it was draconian, it was also something that was helpful. And I needed to wipe the smirk off my face. Yeah, I don't think you hear a lot of people talk about prison being helpful. So I think that's a very interesting perspective. Well, I wish I could have had that help without going to prison. Sure. But but what I I really needed was a break. I needed to learn a new way of life. Mm -hmm. And because I knew nothing really about human dignity and respect before then. I got a chance to be with people who were raised in much less fortunate circumstances than I was as being in a uh, you know, child of an affluent suburbs of New York, I was able to come to understand what their challenges were. That inspired me and it kind of gave me a calling. So when I went out, when I came out of prison, within a couple of years, I'd applied to and then started attending Union Theological Seminary and where I got my Master's of Divinity. It wasn't like I had this uh, eureka moment. I want to become a, a minister to white collar criminals. I did want to help people who were in the same situation as me. And in fact, that had been happening all along because I was going to recovery in Greenwich, Connecticut. And we lived in Greenwich, which is a very wealthy community, obviously. So anytime someone would come into the rooms of recovery in Greenwich, people would say, go see Jeff. He's the prison guy. <laughs> right. and, and so by the time I had really started this ministry with my wife, I had probably helped a hundred or more guys who were captains of industry or lawyers or professionals who not only had drug or alcohol problems so that they were in the rooms and broke recovery, Mm -hmm. but they had fallen because of all kinds of prosecution issues. I came to understand all that, but I was also working in the inner city in reentry. And eventually I became the executive director of a large Connecticut-based criminal justice nonprofit. That's work was primarily inner city and domestic violence and violent crimes. And I was able to meld those disciplines together into understanding how we could actually make a positive sum game out of all of this, how, how the component parts were kind of divorced from them. The people who live in the affluent areas have no understanding of what 
criminal justice is or, or how to survive and how to rally around each other as a community. And the people who live in the, in the more impoverished areas, they really don't know what it takes necessarily to live professional kind of life because they were deprived of those resources, whether it be education, health, single parent families, all, you know, all of those social determinants that led to that type of crime. Right. So it was, it was an amazing experience. Honestly, Kelly, I can tell you every day I'm helped more than the people who I try to help. That's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about the two different kinds of folks that, that you work with. And what are some of the particular challenges do you think that white collar criminals in particular have when they come back from prison? Obviously, there's, there's a change of lifestyle, probably. We hear about folks all the time. There's Manafort or someone going to prison and then coming back. And I think in our minds, we assume those people are in the same place they were before, but, but they're not. So what are some of the challenges that you think people should know? Well, it's rarely the case that people are in the same situation. I mean, you'd have to be very wealthy in order to be kind of Teflon enough for to, to have the same kind of lifestyle. But there's not that many Martha Stewart's out there. For the most part, people misunderstand white-collar crime and prosecution because they, they're thinking these, these big sensationalized headlines and what's splashy out there mm-hmm. and what's on CNBC or on the Wall Street Journal. The truth is, is that the overwhelming majority of people who are prosecuted for these crimes are kind of just like normal people who live down the street, whose children play with your children. They're attorneys and doctors and accountants, or, or they can be people who have underlying issues like mental health issues or drug addiction issues, or just caught up kind of in a weird way societally where they have to keep up with the Joneses, and they're kind of desperate to do that. And they overlook what we would otherwise call character. In my case, I was not raised well. That's something that I think a, a lot of people going through these issues, they're not looking at things that happen in life as opportunities to get to increase their character or perhaps to get closer to God. They're, they're material. They're, this is, we have a material capitalistic world. Right. What the Italians have an expression called mal educato. What it means literally is poorly educated, but what it really means is poorly bred. I was mal educato. I didn't have the character it took to be able to say no mm-hmm. or to be able to go to my ex-wife and say, look, I'm, I'm not the man I thought I was, or I'm not the earner I thought I was, or I'm at the tipping point. I'm being asked to do, for example, in a hedge fund where you might have bosses who are putting pressure on you. I'm being asked to do things that are just antithetical to my core value system, or that the change has been so imperceptible that you slip over the line without even knowing it, because every single day you're asked to do a little more, a little more that's wrong. Right. The one more thing, and maybe that's the thing that makes you get partner. You know, it's hard. Exactly. And I would say the reason that most guys, we'll just talk about guys, because most of these, uh, most people go to prison are guys, but although there's women and that's an increasing group of people, the guys are afraid to go to their wives and talk, tell them the truth, tell them the truth because they've been lying to them for a decade. They've been emotionally distant. They've emotionally abandoned the relationship. So the partnership isn't there. Right. And they're afraid that their wives will leave them mm-hmm. because in their minds, they're thinking that 
it's only the money that's keeping the marriage together, or at least that's their fear. What we found in our ministry is that if you went to the wives and asked them, would you have preferred that your husband came to you and told you the truth and humbled himself, most of them would have been thrilled to have their husband back. Right. Have the one that they married a decade for before, sure. and they would forgive the emotional detachment and say, of course, yes, let's go back. Let's let's go back to a starter home or let, right. let's cut out all this stuff. Oh, it's all been illusion anyway. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen often enough and you wind up with a lot of suffering. Right. You've given a lot of great advice for our listeners about making sure that you, you're you honest with people, that you're honest with yourself, that you think about where your business is going. Obviously, you've learned a lot of life lessons over the past few years, but what would you say is the most important thing that if you could tell listeners, you know, the one thing you would want them to take away? It would go to hope. And it would go to that there's no way necessarily that you can see your way through your problem today. Sometimes it's just enough to be able to get through the day and get to the next day. But if you make a one degree change each day or accomplish one thing each day at the end of a year, that's 365 things. You've gone pretty far. And an example is when I went down in 2002, I was a Jewish lawyer from New York. Now, 18 years later, I'm a Catholic priest in Connecticut <laughs> ministering to white collar criminals. Right, right. Now, that wasn't like something that happened on, uh, the next day. I didn't like wake up from my, uh, for, from my overdose and say, I, I have a great idea. I'm going to go become a Catholic priest. Right. There, were, there were a lot of steps along the way. And I think that getting into the river and allowing life or God or universe, whatever you believe in, to just take you down the curves of the river. And as the river curves, you see vistas and other opportunities and life begets more life in all kinds of other things. That's where healthy people want to be. Right. But in order, order to do that, you have to push yourself off the dock. And when people are in trauma or they've, underta- or they've undergone huge life-altering events, and it doesn't have to be criminal or it doesn't have to be financial, it can be a divorce, it can be death of a child, it can be uh, all kinds of personal things that keep you frightened and afraid to go out and engage life again, then you never don't really have an opportunity to see where life is going to take you. What I'd like to be is a power of example that every day I kind of woke up for years and my mantra was, any place is better than where I am right now. So I took a step to be someplace else and all those steps added up. Now, I'm not saying my life is perfect right now. I mean, I'm probably making 120th the amount of money I was, well, less than that, actually. (laughs) But I'm not looking over my shoulder anymore. I'm not scared. I'm not drug addled. I'm living a life of of love with my wife, and the the two of us are so close. And that's because I'm committed to the honesty. Right. When I saw this situation developing, and I started hearing about SBA, and I started hearing about all the money that they were going to throw at the problem, I said, sound the alarm. You know, just, and because it's my calling to help people, and and it would be much better to help them before they got into the problem yes. <laughs> than to try to clean up the pieces after. Right, right. We say that all the time, in the, and especially in the tax world. Like, it's so much better to fix it now than fix it later. Mm. And yet, the war is so great. 
Kelly, the lore is so great. And I get it. I understand. I was there. If anybody wants to you know, reach me and talk to me about it, go to my website mm-hmm. or, or ministry website, prisonist.org. And certainly on entrepreneur.com, you can uh, read that article that kind of prompted some of these conversations. I'll be sure to have that article and the link to your website on the show notes so that everybody can reach you. Yep. And I found out yesterday that it was the number one most popular article on entrepreneur.com. So (laughs) that's never happened to me before. Who would have thought an article about going to prison for an SBA loan would become the most popular but I, article. But I think that there's so much, again, I think it, it, it plays to so much of people's, what, what's happening right now. And it's, and again, I, I, the thing that I thought was, was wonderful about it is that, you know, it's cautionary, but it's also understanding. I think sometimes we can be so judgy about don't do this. It's wrong. And that that's, it's easy to say, but I think because you've been there and you can talk about not just, yeah, it's wrong, but here's what can happen and why you should take a step back because good things can come too. I think that's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful takeaway. I I get all the time. You don't look like a drug addict, right? Or you don't look like a criminal. Right. I mean, I I don't know what that means, right? But, but the truth is, is that this zoom is kind of a perfect format because I'm not only looking at you, I'm looking at myself. If I had stood in front of the mirror back then, and been able to take an honest look at myself, then, well, the honesty is the hard part, obviously, but if I'd been able to do it, then just maybe I wouldn't have gotten into all of this trouble and I wouldn't have had all the suffering or neither of my family. Right. Thank you so much for your time. Twice now, I appreciate it. Um, and thank you for being on the show. And again, my listeners can find out more about Jeff at prisonist.org and I'm going to put all of that contact info in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl and you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.